So here at Midtown, we have prayed, we have worshiped the Lord, and we've actually put hands and feet to our faith here. Um, But we also believe the Lord comforts us, he guides us, and he leads us through his word. So uh, we're going to dive into the word, and we've been going through um, the book of Luke since right after Christmas, and kind of just plotting our way through chapter after chapter, and uh, The story that I'm about to read from the book of Luke, this was put on the calendar back in the fall when we planned this series. And when we turned to this this week, uh, I was with the pastors and we all just kind of laughed and said, of course, this is what Jesus is doing. So if you'll turn with me to Luke chapter eight, starting in verse 22, you'll see what I mean. One day Jesus said to his disciples, so Jesus is cruising along, doing his Jesus thing. And he's got this whole crowd of people. It's not just his 12. When he said disciples in this passage, Luke is talking about all the people that are following Jesus, which we don't know how many that is. But he turns to this this crowd. We know at the beginning of chapter eight, it included a lot of women whose lives have been radically transformed. And we're now not only following Jesus, but also we're funding a lot of his ministry through their own pockets. Go back and read, it's really interesting how women were really the foundation of a lot of what Jesus did. So Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, hey, let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and they set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him up saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. And he got up and he rebuked the winds and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. Let's just pray. Lord, um, you promise where you gather and we, where we worship and where we gather, you come with us and you use these things powerfully in our lives. And when we read your word and teach your word, you promise to work. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, you rebuke us, you love us, you kiss us, you hug us, you teach us and guide us and challenge in us. And I pray, Lord, whatever you need to do in our hearts today as a community, uh, Lord, come in power and do that. Fight through our cynicism, our doubts, Lord, even our attention span uh, because of the time change and speak to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So it's been a really uh, hard week for a lot of people in our community. And um, I don't know how much of the devastation you've seen firsthand, but it's breathtaking. Um, I mean, when I walked through East Nashville, I literally... um, I mean, houses are gone. Like they're, they're just splinters. And you wonder, how, how did anybody survive that? It's just unbelievable. And then when I went up to North Nashville to be with my friend Kirk, who many of you know because he's been here preaching before, who's planning a church. And Kirk's planning a church in North Nashville. If you don't know what's going on in North Nashville, North Nashville is a community that's been in Nashville for generations. And it's been the bedrock of the African-American community. 
Uh, but over the last 30 years, there's, there's been a lot of poverty that's come in. There's been a lot of pain that's come into that community. And there's been a lot of gentrification. So you'll have a lot of houses that are homes where a lot of people with poverty live. And then you'll have a tall and skinny that just sold for $500,000. This neighborhood is changing. And so Kirk, like, sweet guy, um, and he, you know, he's just a tall guy about my age, and he's very white. Like, he's, he's the definition of white. I don't even think he tans, you know? <laughs> but God called him into that neighborhood to bridge the gap between the poor and those that are coming in through this gentrification movement and bring the gospel. And they've done that. They are a worshiping body that's a mixed group of people from those that are impoverished to the young professionals that want to live in that community and love. And this tornado hit that community hard. And Kirk, with tears, he looked at me and he goes, this may be the end of this community. He said, I, I don't know. He said, 25% of the people that live in this neighborhood, it's not owner uh, occupancy. Um, the people that own their homes that are poor, they've inherited them from generations. And so they don't owe anything on these homes. They don't have the money to rebuild these homes. The pressure on them to sell their home now to developers that want to scrape them and build tall and skinnies, it's unbelievable. And he said, I don't know if these will stay. But then the 75% of the people that rent are renting from people that he says, I have no doubt none of them are going to invest money into their low rent housing they're not making enough from government housing support to rebuild these houses. And he was just looking at me with tears. And he says, do we care that we're losing this neighborhood? And I didn't know what to say to him. But as we stood there, we watched hundreds of people from this community come and serve. Like hundreds. And some of you have done that. Yesterday, there were so many people serving across this city they were turning people away. Like they were like, go home. We, we don't want you here. Like you're, you're in the way. Like, like they'd have 10 people. One of the guys told me, he, says, he said, it was kind of scary because I was out in North Nashville on Wednesday and there were five people with chainsaws all cutting on the same tree. <laughs> he goes, and they weren't watching what each other was doing. Like they're just cutting. He says, and there were like 10 college girls standing around drinking lattes, just watching and seeing where that tree's going to fall. I know. <laughs> it's just beautiful, the humanity. And how do we as a church respond? Um, I'm not talking about how do we come into this building and respond, because this building's not the church. We're the church. We come here collectively to be reminded of what's spiritually true about us, so that when we leave here, we leave here with something that's spiritually powerful that we take into the city. So let's come to the story. Maybe there's a couple things that Jesus wants to teach us from this story. And just, I'm not gonna preach for long. And so let me just state, I, I can't preach everything in this passage. It's three verses, but it's packed with everything from Genesis to Revelation is wrapped up in this story. But this is the disciples and they're on the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was this, it is this weird body of water that's only five miles wide. and It's about 13 miles long. It's surrounded by mountains, and because of where it is in the mountains, it creates this unique weather system, and storms can blow up pretty quickly, the, the winds that come down off the mountains. And here's what's crazy, is these disciples, his, his closest disciples were fishermen, 
And they grew up fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And every one of those fishermen knew this is it. This is the storm that they called the boat sinker. This is the storm that they call um, the killer, the fisherman taker. This is the storm that they called death. And I can just imagine from the time they were little kids growing up on the Sea of Galilee, their father and their mother instilled in them a fear of that storm. Can you imagine? Do you know that I, I think, and this is just my sanctified imagination, there probably wasn't a person in that boat that couldn't name somebody, either their family members or friends or somebody they grew up with in their village that hadn't lost their lives to the sea on the Sea of Galilee. All of them knew the stories all of them knew what it looked like. All of them knew what it smelt like. And here it was, it came on them. And so we know that this is a fear that's been fostered in them from the time they were toddlers. And when that storm hit, they became afraid. And if you despise them for being afraid, shame on you. That's a generational fear that they inherited and they were living out of rightfully so. And why not? I mean, this is a horrific situation. One of our Midtown families, at midnight, I can't tell you the exact time, he got up and they realized we've got to run to safety and he ran to his son's room and grabbed him. But before he could turn around, the windows in their house blew out and they're just covered in glass and they just dropped right there and he realized we're, gonna, we're, we're going to endure this storm right here on the floor in your room. It's on us. That storm lifted the roof off their house. It took the roof. Oh, I just spit. It just took the roof off their house. And I asked them, where's the roof? They said, we don't know. He's just gone. Laying on the floor in his son's room with him laying over his son, the roof of their house got torn apart like in a movie or something. Do you think they were afraid? Is there anybody in this room that would say, you're not a good Christian if you were afraid? No. But fear is, is a weird thing. And we got to talk about this because I think this story is a lot about fear. And what I think it's a lot about is that, that if, if we don't acknowledge something about fear, then fear has crazy consequences in our lives. In other words, many of us believe that fear is something that we got to avoid. It's something we got to keep at bay. It's something we got to keep out of our lives. We don't want to have anything to do with fear. And if you can imagine your heart is like a home, you lock the doors, you pull down the shutters, and you say, fear's banging on the door, and I ain't letting it in. And when we don't let it in, it kind of becomes toxic. And what it does when, it comes, when, it's, when we're fighting to keep it out it does weird things in our life. One of the things that it does is that it becomes this weird fortune teller. And what I mean by that is we see it in the story. They're running to Jesus and they're saying to him, we are going to drown. In other words, hey, high king of heaven, prophet, God incarnate, we're telling you what the future holds for us. We're going to drown. And that's what fear fear has this weird way when it's toxic in our lives to create a future that doesn't exist and then make us emotionally react to it. Does that make sense? Like you may be single here today and uh, your fear is you're never going to get married. 
And you could spend this whole afternoon emotionally reacting to a future that fear is written that's never even taken place and may never occur. But today, you're living in the emotional unreality of a future that doesn't exist. Fear does that. We, we could do that like the coronavirus. Like we could join the rest of the world in panic and fear. Should we be concerned? Of course. It's so normal. But like if I, if fear now begins to wrap itself in toxicity around my own heart, I stop believing that God is sovereign and in control. I stop believing that he knows the numbers of my days, that he has a plan for me. I, I, it's so crazy what fear does to us because it begins to tell a future that's only in fear's imagination. But another thing that fear does is fear always believes that whatever's happened in the past is going to happen in the future. Like Dave Burden, he's preached here before. He says this all the time. If it's hysterical, it's probably historical. What it means, meaning is if you're hysterical about something, it's probably because you've had trauma in the past that has hurt you and made you so afraid that you're absolutely convinced that whatever happened back there is going to happen in the future. See, the disciples were doing this. We're going to drown. Meaning everybody we know that was ever in this situation didn't survive to tell about it. That's the past. And the past is dictating what's going to happen in the future. And fear goes, gives no room for a possible different future. I wish we had time for this because uh, we could talk about how fear rewrites our narratives. It, it writes stories. This story is in Mark, Matthew, and in Luke. And in Mark, I love how Mark put it. He said that they, were, they went to Jesus and said, teacher, don't you care if we drown? What's the narrative that, that fear is writing for the disciples there? The storm has come up. You're asleep. That means to us, you don't care at all. So fear is horrible, right? We should never be afraid. And no, you know, all our emotions are beautiful gifts from God. And if we had time today, I could talk to you about how the Lord talks a lot about fear, the beauty of fear, the fear of the Lord, and why that plays such a powerful role in our lives. But all I'm going to say to you this morning is that, that fear is a gift that God has given us because fear is an inviting emotion. And what I mean by that is when, when fear's knocking on the door of my heart, if I open the door and I welcome fear, and I, I grab it by the hand as almost like an ambassador from the kingdom of heaven, and I bring it in and sit it on the couch, and I go, I want to hear what you're saying. And as I listen to my fear, then I invite fear to take its hand of faith. Take the hand of faith, something profound happens because faith looks at fear and says, thank you, because you're, you're here to remind us that we're to cry out. Let me try to explain when your kids, when your kids are little and they're scared in their room and it's the middle of the night, what do they do? Who do they call for? Y'all don't know. Which one do they call for? You notice that was a very masculine voice that just said that. I can tell you as a parent, there is nothing more rewarding in life than the middle of the night and hearing your kids scream out. And you hear that magic word, mom. And I nudge your name and go, that, they're calling for you. <laughs> uh, 
It's really great, isn't it? Because she'll go to their room and go, is it me you really want? And she'll come back and go, no, it's you they want. Go. They're afraid. And you know what happens when our kids are afraid? Because they know we love them, they cry out to us. And what's amazing is when I come into my kid's room and I lay down on the bed with them, immediately they're comforted. There's a sense of joy and satisfaction even that I'm in the bed with them. And actually their fear now gets turned into courage. And that closet that monster was in just five minutes ago, now they're jumping up and running around the room because now courage has given them adventure. And adventure actually leads them into the very closet that they were afraid of. Because why? Because daddy's in the room. Fear, when it takes the hand of faith, actually becomes a crying emotion. And who do we cry to? Jesus. We cry to Jesus. And Jesus comes in and transforms us. So I want to talk about that just for a second, because that transformation is what we're going to take in the city. But first, let me tell you what this story is not saying. Okay, This story is not saying, never be afraid, always have faith. Thank God it's not saying that. Because there ain't no way you're going to leave here and live a life with no fear. You're not going to be able to do it. And in fact, you don't want to do that. You don't. Because of fear, the gift of God. But if we leave here thinking that fear is actually the opposite of faith instead of the two things come together, you know what we'll create here? We'll create a church where we feel ashamed when we're afraid. And we can never talk about our fear. And we actually shame ourselves and we'll start to believe this. This is crazy. But you'll come to church and you'll look around and you'll do that comparison thing that every one of us does. And you'll start to think, nobody here is afraid but me. Wow, that's such a lie. That'll poison this community. That's not what this story is about. It's also not saying if you have enough faith, like if you have enough faith, then G and then you exercise that faith, Jesus will come in and calm every one of your storms. If you have enough faith and if you will exercise that faith, Jesus is going to come in and rescue you from every adversity. That is a lie. And let me tell you why it's a lie. Every guy that was in that boat, except for one, gave his life for the faith. And do you not think that when they were going to their grave, they didn't cry out to Jesus? And yet Jesus didn't save them from that adversity. This is not a story about you having enough faith and the tornadoes are never going to touch your home. That's not what this is about. What this story is about is Jesus challenging us. If we would dare to see our fear and let it take the hand of faith to where we're crying out to Jesus, Jesus will step into our adversity. And here's what he'll do. He'll make us the kind of people that will walk into adversity. He'll make us the kind of people that have courage. He'll make us the kind of people that's not always crying out, God, rescue us from this but give me strength into it. That's what the church looks like. Because we are the ones that walk into adversity with hope. We are the ones that walk into devastation with hope. We're the ones that lock into disasters with hope. So one of my friends, Tom Robinson, he's this 75-year-old black man that lives up in North Nashville, but he grew up in inner city Detroit. His story is phenomenal. I mean, he's just such a joy to be around. He played football for Nebraska when they won the national championship and 
God took him on this crazy road, and I won't tell you his whole story, but I asked him once, can you tell me what it's like to grow up in Detroit? And I'm not going to understand that, but he grew up in inner city Detroit, and he said, it's hard to describe to you how terrible it is to be in a community that has no hope. He says, when hope has been cut out of the heart of a community, it is the most terrible thing to behold. And he leaned in in that moment, and he calls me pastor even though, you know, he's 50 years older than I am. And uh, he goes, pastor, that's the job of the church, isn't it? I said, what, Tom? He says, we're the keepers of the flame of hope. That's what we are. We're the keepers of the flame. We're the ones that bring hope into the community and we don't let it die. That's why in Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 31, listen to what it says about hope. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint, no matter the size of the storm. Because we, the church, know that in every adversity, God is not asleep. We know that in every adversity, Jesus is working. So when I was over in North Nashville with Kirk, one of his church members, they've transformed his front yard into a kitchen. And they're just cooking food and giving away diapers. But right next to this guy's house uh, is what they call the Jesus house now. Because all the walls in this house are gone. Like they're just gone. Like the living room is just like the outdoor patio now, you know? And there's the couch that survived the tornado. That couch should not have survived the tornado, by the way. There are some things the tornado should have taken away. That couch was one of them. (laughs) But there was a fireplace in that room, the, one of the only walls still standing in the house, a fireplace. And right above the fireplace, on the mantle, it's not hung there, it's not bolted there, it's just leaning there, and it survived the whole tornado, is one of those old paintings, portraits of Jesus. And I laughed and I said, well, Kurt, why is it all taped to the wall now? And he said, well, we just didn't want it to fall. (laughs) Y'all went over and taped it to the wall. I said, Kirk, you survived the tornado. Like, isn't that just like us? You know, Jesus does something miraculous and we go, yeah, but it could be a little better. But we, wink, wink, nod, nod, Kirk and I are poking each other because we've been through adversity and Jesus is there. And he gives us kisses all the times, like stupid little pictures on walls that are only standing in a house that's gone. I know it's crazy, but that community looks at that and says, Jesus has not left our community. And we know that Jesus works in the middle of adversity because we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who've been called according to his purpose. Let me finish with this. A lot of people come out of these kind of disasters and says, where is God? Why why would God let this happen? Is he good? And I don't have time in the next three minutes to wrestle with you and the theological question of that because the reality is I I don't know why God allows these things to happen. Uh, But it's not just this storm. If you live long enough, you're going to have a lot of why questions in your life. Because trust me, if, if you live long enough, you're going to have a whole list of adversities that you've walked through and you've been through, things that you've grieved, 
losses that you've experienced, pain that you've endured, I just promise you, unless you lock yourself away, and when you do that, that's its own adversity. But if you decide to live your life as a wholehearted person in, in this community, and you, you go out to love people and let people love you, you're gonna have a lot of adversity. And a lot of whys. And I don't know the answer to why for any of them. I just know what the answer isn't. The answer isn't that Jesus doesn't care. And the reason I can say that is because Jesus stepped into the storm of my life. He stepped into the storm of your life. He stood in front of the tornado of God's wrath for our sin and said, no more. And the way he did that was he said, hit, hit me instead. That he walked into the pain and the adversity of this world and he took it on himself so that he could show his love to us. Do you know in Hebrews chapter 12, it says we are called now as those that are his, the church, to fix our eyes on Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. And for the joy set before him, the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And do you know what that joy is? The joy that he was so excited about that he would not avoid the cross. He wouldn't go around the cross. He didn't come up with plan B. He goes, I'm walking right into the cross because of this joy. The joy was you. He was coming after you, taking on your storm so that you could take on his joy. We're the ones he loves. We're his joy. So I don't know what the answer is, but I know the answer isn't that he's left us. And when we know that, here's what happens. Jesus fills our cup with hope, with faith, with love. When we take fear and we put it in the hand of faith, it fills us up. And we get to go in the world and spill it out. This week has been about picking up a lot of trash and rubble and people's homes. And, but over the next year, it's going to be about picking up lives. And as John shared with you, that is our desire to now see this as an opportunity for us to be the church to bring hope into a community in North Nashville. So when he's asking you to join us, I don't know what that's going to look like short term. Um, but long-term, I know it means prayer. It means care. It means us believing in what the work that Kirk's doing up there, partnering with the churches up there that we have no relationship with, but through Kirk we can have, and bringing healing up there, bringing compassion, but most of all, bringing hope. Okay? So let me pray for us, and let's respond in worship. Lord, thank you that in the midst of pain and tragedy and trauma. Um, and Lord, so many people that we know and don't know have been displaced. Children that um, are wondering where they're gonna live. Parents who are trying to figure out um, how to make money now that their jobs are gone. God, we pray for them. We pray that you would use the hands and feet of your saints in those communities, the churches, we pray for them, Lord, that they would stand strong on your grace and on your provision and help us to support, to love, to care, to move into and be those that shine hope in this city. In Christ's name we pray, amen.